Thanks for listening to the Light Church Podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. We pray that the Lord would speak to you through His Word. For more information, you can visit our website, lightsandiego.com. And tonight, uh, honestly, it feels a little bit weird ending this series because we can't stop talking about prayer. Prayer has to remain central. And so with that in mind, tonight's all going to be about resilience, uh, resilience in our prayer, how to pray without ceasing. Um, In order to talk about that, we're going to be highlighting a few different things. Number one is that Jesus calls his church a house of prayer. Uh, We're going to be looking at the the framework Jesus gives us and what that means and how we're to engage that. Uh, We're also going to be talking about probably one of the greatest hurdles to accomplishing that, Um, And that's the mystery around disappointment in prayer. Um, And some of you guys have reached out, like, are we going to talk about when God doesn't answer prayers? What do we do with that? And so we're going to be spending some time tonight kind of of wading into those waters um, about what, what about those spaces that for many of us have actually prevented us from entering into a robust prayer life. And then lastly, we're going to be talking about how to instill rhythms and patterns of unceasing gratitude uh, so that whether the series stops or not, we don't stop being a people of prayer. Uh, So let's dive into the kind of our first theme tonight and say idea that God is wanting to build a house of prayer. And before we dive into the teachings of Jesus, it's important to point out that the house of prayer model, this idea that there's unceasing prayer is not something that was uh, brought about, a, you know, a couple decades ago out of Kansas City, this thing called IHOP. It wasn't started a few hundred years ago from the Moravians. It didn't start last week at Asbury University. Uh, it actually began even before the time of Jesus in the time of King David. So thousands of years ago, when Israel had become a nation, they had requested that they be given a king. And God says, I want to be your king. And they said, no, we want like a human king like the rest of the nations. So God says, it's a bad idea, but if that's what you want, you can have what you want. And so the people of Israel go and pick who they wanted to be king. Uh, they chose the person who was the tallest from, uh, from a tribe that they liked and that had all of the outward appearance that would make him out to be a good king. And that was by a guy named Saul, and it was a disaster. And so God says, okay, my turn. I'm going to pick the king of my choice. And so he does the exact opposite. He goes to his family filled with brothers. And as they line up all of the brothers, uh, the father specifically doesn't invite one of the brothers to be chosen. Talk about needing therapy later on in life. Like what that kind of does for you. He'll never be king. Anyone else that we've born, good. Um, And they're these kind of strong people. You look at them like, yeah, you would make sense to be a king. God says, that's not who I choose. I'm, I'm choosing someone, um, someone else, because man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. And he goes and chooses the shepherd boy and says, you'll be king, anoints him as king right then and there, but it's years before he becomes king. And what's interesting about this shepherd is that later on, God gives him the title of the man after God's own heart. And so he keeps playing on this idea. There's something about the heart of David that has captured God's attention. Now, that's really interesting when you look at the life of David and the biography of his life is filled with scandal, with a lack of morality, things like murder and affairs. I mean, the, the guy is just 
absolutely corrupt in some of the decisions that he makes, which kind of makes you think, especially kind of in more of our Western kind of religious paradigm, like what in the world, what, what kind of guy is this? But what we do have from David is his prayer book. We have the Psalms. We have more written prayers from David than any other person in the Bible. And there's something about how David prayed that seems to give us a clue in why God says, that's the heart I'm looking for. The level of honesty that he communicated with, the level of dedication that he had. And one of the things that marked David's life is that his coronation as king had a had a triumphal entry. He had just been, uh, Saul was now dead, and the very first thing he does as king is that the Philistines had captured the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant is what housed the presence of God in the middle of the temple. And so he goes and captures it back. And they're bringing back the Ark of the Covenant into the center of the city where they're going to reinstate worship and prayer around the Ark of the Covenant. And as he's doing that, he's coming up the way and it says that he is worshiping God in a linen ephod, which is a priestly garment. It's like priestly underwear. They don't give pastors those anymore, apparently. But priests have their own like special underwear. And David's wearing it and he's dancing in it, which is interesting because you would think at his coronation that David would be wearing a kingly robe, but he's dressed like a priest. And as he's doing this, his wife, who happened to be the daughter of Saul, named Michael, looks from her window and she scoffs at him and later on rebukes him, says, like, who do you think you are making, making a, a spectacle of yourself out there? And, and he has this great line that's become famous. And he says, I'll become even more undignified than this. There's something about David that says, I'm not going to stop praying. This is who I am. And from that moment on, what scholars believe is it began a movement of 24-7 prayer in that temple, that David hired worshipers and prayers to, to make sure that there was always prayer and worship happening in the temple from that point on. So G David started this prayer movement, this 24-7 prayer movement that wouldn't stop. And this kind of really foreshadows one who would come a, hundred, a few hundred years later, who's most, one of his most common titles was son of David. This was a messianic term that was given to Jesus because there was this prophecy after prophecy that there would be a king that comes from the line of David that would restore the glory of Israel back to its rightful place, free them from their oppression, and reinstate the worship of Yahweh. And so Jesus coming as this messianic figure is constantly referred, referred to as the son of David. And David, or Jesus has his own triumphal entry. He comes in, and like David, it's completely backwards. It's not what you would expect. There's no horse, he's riding a donkey, right? Instead of having a military, they're throwing jackets and palm branches on the ground. And when he gets into town, there's something really interesting that happens. As Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. So this is where he's about to do something. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. And so Jesus comes in and he's there to do something. But by the time he gets there, it's kind of late. There's been lots of crowds and things like that. And he says, okay, I'm going to do this tomorrow. And so he goes and spends the night at, in Bethany, probably at Lazarus' house. And then the next day, he comes in and does something really shocking. Now, you would assume, I don't know about you, sometimes a good night's sleep is exactly what you need just to chill out. 
right? Sometimes Jen and I, if we're like kind of like we can't solve something or in an argument, sometimes the best thing we can do is just like let's just go to bed and let's talk about this in the morning. Because we have a good rule: after 9 p.m., we shouldn't be fighting about anything because we're not making sense, right? And so we we're like let's just let's just get some sleep. And normally that solves it. But interestingly, this night of sleep Jesus had prepared him to do this. It says, on reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. I mean, I don't even like, can you start getting this, this imagery? Jesus comes back to the temple. He slept on it. He's like, yeah, this is what I'm going to do. And just starts whoosh, throwing tables and benches. He stops. He prevents people from doing that. It's almost like this like Gandalf picture, like you shall not pass. Like, like I'm like, what? And everyone's looking at this wild moment of Jesus just doing very, something that really hasn't happened since John chapter 2, where he kind of has this other moment where he's in the temple. He's like, this is not how it should be. And it says this. He taught them, he said, is it not written, and he quotes Isaiah 56, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it into a den of robbers. So behind the most emotionally charged, angry moment of Jesus' life is a righteous indignation that they forgot about prayer and they forgot about the lost. And so just a little bit of context here. The way the temple was set up to get close to the presence of God, which was housed in the Holy of Holies, you had to bring a sacrifice in to do that, but you could only get as far in as your, as your cultural status and as your gender would allow you. So if you weren't Jewish, you only got to the outer courts. And if you were Jewish and you're female, you got to go a little bit closer. But it's only if you were male and you were Jewish, you got to go into the inner courts. And then if you were a priest or a high priest, you could go in beyond that. And so what would happen is if you were to travel, let's say from like a few hundred miles away to Jerusalem to offer you the sacrifice, it's too long of a journey to bring lambs or to bring cattle to sacrifice. So what you do is you'd bring money and you would purchase the animal there. And so at the outer courts of the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people, money changers were set up there and they were extorting people. They were, they were charging people too much money for the, for the sacrifices. And Jesus walks in and he sees what's happening. He says, these people have traveled all this way to worship Yahweh. And you are making it hard for them to enter into the presence of God. And he says, this is not what the temple was built for. And he quite literally flips it on its head. And he looks at them after like just, you can just imagine just like the, the disheveled temple. And everyone, the dust begins to settle, and everyone looks at Jesus, and he just says these words, my house will be a house of prayer for all nations. Now, we should take note of this 2,000 years later, that Jesus cares about those on the outskirts being able to come into his presence with the least amount of hindrance, and that his house will be known for prayer, which is why this series might end, but this centrality of prayer cannot we have to continue to fight to be a people and a community with a resolve to continue to pray. Which brings up a question. Well, what kind of prayer is Jesus talking about? And this is why we've spent so much time talking about the Lord's Prayer. This is, this is the most explicit reference that Jesus gives us of this is how you ought to pray. And Luke's account of the Lord's Prayer, he does something really interesting. He carries on the conversation after the 
after, we, after the reciting of, of Father, holy be your name, your kingdom come, give us each day our daily bread. And he kind of goes through this, this paraphrased version of the Lord's Prayer in Luke's account. And in verse 5, it says, Then Jesus said to them, Suppose you have a friend, and you go to him at midnight and say, Friend, lend me three loaves of bread, and a friend of mine on a journey has come to me, and I have no food to offer him. By the way, this would have, if a foreigner or a friend showed up at your house at any point of the day, if you didn't have the ability to cook for them, it would have heaped shame on your family. This would have been a huge cultural um, just faux pas that you would never want to do. And so he comes and knocks on his neighbor's, neighbor's door. And suppose on the one on the inside says, don't bother me. The door's already locked and my children and I are in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you the bread because of friendship, yet because of your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. Now, pause right there. Jesus is giving this as an example, not of his father's character, but in contrast to his father's character. He's saying, listen, in your world, this guy's not going to get up because he's your friend. He's going to get up because you're annoying him. You're like, come on, please open up. And the guy's like, just don't wake up my family. But Jesus says, this, that, this is not how it works with your heavenly father. He's not going to do something because of your shameless audacity. He's going to do something because of relationship. And he goes on to say, so I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks find. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened to him. This is a really beautiful yet complicated passage because it makes it sound so simple, doesn't it? Ask door will be open. Seek, you'll find. Knock, and the door will be open to you. A quick note on each, the, the term ask implies a relational dependence like a child would to their parents. Very, it's very practical and pragmatic. You ask because you have a need. The word seek is used primarily in the Old Testament to talk about the spiritual journey. It's a relational term implying that you are trying to get to know or trying to get to God. But the term knock probably packs the most punch in that it implies relational intimacy because it infers this idea of table fellowship. And in those days, again, we don't really think about where we eat or who we eat with as like having much significance in a social or religious, you know, kind of context. Like when you leave here and you go and get a California burrito, a taco stand, or you go through In-N-Out or something like that, you're probably not thinking, what does this say about me socially? You know, so, some of you who go to Godanya only, yeah, we know you. Like, we know, we get it, okay? You only shop at Lazy Acres or something. But for the most part, you're just like, you're eating food, and you're not thinking about who's next to you, or like, you know, thinking about like, what are people thinking? But in, in ancient Near East, um, in ancient, I'm sorry, the Near Ancient Middle East, there would have been a massive deal as far as who you sat with, because by sitting with someone around a table meant this is who you're connected with, this is who you approve of, this is who you are saying, this is, this is my people. And so for, for Jesus to use this idea, like stand at the knock, is implying like this deep sense of relational intimacy. And so again, we read that and we're like, man, Jesus, just, it sounds almost too good to be true. And like, it's really that simple just to ask and to seek and to knock, 
But one thing that's really, really critical to point out about this passage is the tense of the verb that you don't get in your English Bible. The best way this could be translated because of the perfect present tense is to actually keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. Keep in mind, he just gave the Lord's prayer. And he's just saying, listen, your posture in prayer should be don't stop, keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. Don't grow weary. When it comes to prayer, it's not enough for you to check a box or to make it some sort of ritual. It needs to be this continual, ongoing thing. And so when you don't get those responses, when you don't find what you're looking for, when the door is not open, you don't find yourself discouraged. You keep knocking, you keep seeking, you keep asking. And it portrays this sense of, this is the kind of prayer I'm looking for is that a people that would continually go after me in prayer. Why? Because it, it speaks to the level of relationship that he's wanting. It's a sense of like, I want there to be continual conversation between us. Don't stop. Now, one thing I wanted to point out tonight is that Jesus' time, the thing that was keeping people from prayer largely was their social and cultural status. For the most part, not that there aren't versions or extreme versions of this, that's not our problem, right? You, you probably didn't walk in here thinking like, I wonder how close they're gonna let me get to the stage tonight. You know, like I'm from Fresno, so we'll see <laughs> like, you know, how close I can get. Um, that's probably not in the back of your mind. But there are things that actually prevent us from prayer. And I want to talk about one of them tonight because in my opinion, it's probably the biggest. It's when we pray and we don't get the answer. In my opinion, that is the number one thing that keeps us from being a people of prayer is a level of disappointment we carry around in our souls. Like I tried this prayer thing. And when I asked, I didn't get the answer I wanted. When I sought, I felt left alone, or when I knocked, that door stayed shut. And so as an act to preserve my own faith, it's better if I just don't pray. As an act to preserve God's reputation, maybe it's better if I just don't pray those kinds of prayers. Because what if I make an embarrassment of God, or what if my soul just can't take it anymore? And I think it, in order for us to talk about being a people who have a resilient prayer life, we have to talk about this kind of elephant in the room of what happens when prayers aren't answered. What do we do about that? And I, ha I have to point out that there, um, chances are, if you grew up in a religious tradition, you came from one of two primary ways of thinking of prayer. One would be more of kind of a reformed tradition that has a high view of God's fixed sovereignty. Meaning that if you don't get the answer that you're wanting in prayer, God has already made that judgment in his mind and your only option to do is just to trust his nature. And the problem that that presents with people is when things don't feel like they line up with God's nature and they feel unjust and they're still being told just to trust. It's hard. The benefit of that tradition is there is a deep sense of faith. There's a deep sense of humility. 
But then many of us grew up in another camp that has a more dynamic relational view of prayer that you can, God will hear you. Things can change, which presents its own danger. Because if when I'm praying, God can hear me and things can change and they don't, what does that mean? Does it mean that I don't have the kind of faith that produced the outcome that I wanted? Or does that mean maybe God is, doesn't have the nature that I thought he had? And it presents both of these camps, I think, provide an overly simplistic view of prayer that presents problems and kind of a theological crisis for us. And I want to talk about that a little bit tonight because we have to have a broader, more robust understanding of what does it mean for us to be praying to a God if he is loving and good. And we believe this. What happens when we say these prayers that we think are aligned with who God is, and all of a sudden it feels like there's a disconnect in the outcome of those events? Tyler Stanton, in his book, says that theologians call the unavoidable question that enters our lives because of suffering a theodicy, an English word formed from two Latin words that mean justice of God. There's no spirituality, philosophy, or worldview that manages to sidestep the theodicy riddle, no matter how you explain life. You're stuck trying to fit the square peg called justice into the round hole called suffering. And so what I want to do tonight is I want to kind of wade into these waters with a level of sensitivity because I know that this, this is the stuff that's a bit hard to talk about. And in order to do this well, I want to offer you four things to think about when it comes to a sense of unanswered prayer that I think help us have a more well-rounded view of what actually might be happening. These are the four things. Number one, we have to take into consideration God's world, which is both beautiful and broken. Secondly, we have to take into consideration God's war that is very raw and very real. Thirdly, we have to wrestle with the idea the thing called God's way, how he does things, and understanding that's very mysterious yet merciful. And lastly, we have to come to the conclusion of what is God's will, understanding that it is ultimately eternal and victorious. So I want to give you a quick word on each of these points that hopefully will give us a a more robust theology when it comes to prayer, specifically when prayers are not answered the way that we want them to be. The first one is God's world. We believe because of Genesis 131 that says God saw all that he had made and it was very good. We believe that there is beauty and order in the world. We believe that at its core, you and the world were created with good intention, with a beautiful sense of design. But in Genesis chapter 3, that beautiful world that God created encountered a massive fracture at the advent of sin that we call the fall. And in Genesis chapter 3, it outlines this ultimate decision in Adam and Eve, which is a representation of all humanity to choose its own version of good and evil over God's, ultimately choosing distrust in God's nature, resulting in rebellion against him. And God's response is that the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. There's the mercy part. 
And the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and live forever. So God in his mercy sends Adam and Eve outside, meaning this beautiful world that was created for eternity now has to be a beautiful but broken world that's temporary. I don't want them to stay in the brokenness forever. So he moves them outside the garden. And so we now live in that beautiful, broken world. And you might be like, well, what about Jesus? Didn't Jesus come to like solve that? And, 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 and if he did come to solve that, what, why are we still living within kind of the ramifications of the brokenness of the world? And I think one of the greatest passages that describes the current state we're in post-resurrection is in Paul's letter to the Romans in chapter 8. And he's talking about suffering. That's the context. He says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that, here it is, will be revealed in us. So he's talking about our present suffering, yet there's a future reality that's promised that's on its way that he defines as glory. And he says, for the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed, for the creation was subject to frustration which I think is an important phrase. Not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its, here it is, bondage to decay. So this is a future, future tense longing, meaning that currently we live in a world subject to frustration, and we live in a world that is in bondage to decay. So that is the current state of our world. Verse 22 says, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not have yet, we wait for it patiently. So think about this. So we live in a world that is subject to frustration, that's in bondage to decay. And so what's our response? It says creation is groaning. It says inwardly, we're groaning. There's something inside that says this world is not as it should be. And it doesn't mean it's not beautiful and there's gifts and grace all around us. But if you've, if you've lived for any amount of time, it doesn't take you long to realize there's something that's severely off. So, so what do we do? I love it. It says, e- even in our the rede- longing for the redemption of our bodies, even our bodies. I mean, I'm 37, you guys. It's downhill from here for me, okay? It's like, it's, like, it's downhill, uphill. I don't know. It's, it's bad, okay? It's not going better for me. And so I realize that there's something like, I'm like, oh, my, my body, the world around me, the car I drive, the economic and political systems of, the, of our world, everything is actually headed towards a trajectory marked by this frustration. So what do we do? It says we wait patiently. We put our hope in the coming glory that's to come. And so I think the first thing is oftentimes when, when, when people talk to me about like the frustration of unanswered prayer, and they, they're so quick to blame God, which is fair. God has big enough shoulders to handle that. I th- oftentimes, there's very rare mention just the reality that we live in a broken world, which means that on this side of eternity, we will actually be increasing our level of loss until we pass. 
And I think there's something, especially in our 20s and 30s, that we, we really reject that. Like, I don't want to increase my level of loss. And at some point, we actually have to learn to accept that. Some people do it better than others. But I think the reality is if we don't have a theology that accurately depicts the world we live in, that is beautiful, but it is broken, then it actually helps us in our prayer life to start understanding, oh, maybe there are other things at play here that doesn't mean that God cannot intervene. We'll talk about that in a second, but it just means that there, is, there are other things at play. So that's the first thing. The second thing, besides God's world, is that we actually believe that the Bible teaches us about God's war. Again, this is a strange one for us who live in a Western, largely secular society that only wants to talk about a spiritual realm when it comes to like Halloween and like a scary movie. It's, like, it's not really something that we like think about all the time, but there is an, another reality that's going on, the spiritual realm, that actually factors into our prayer life. And so can I just read you one of the weirdest verses in the entire Bible? Like, it's just to just have some fun. Okay, this is in Daniel chapter 10. This is talking about prayer. And an angel shows up to Daniel to answer his prayer. He says, then he continued, Don't be afraid, Daniel, since the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before God, your words were heard. So were heard. So when, when was Daniel's prayer heard? Day one. Immediately. His prayer was heard. And I have come in response to them. But... The prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me 21 days. Then Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me because I was detained there with the king of Persia. Now I have come to explain to you what will happen to your people in the future, for the vision concerns a time yet to come. So, no, 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 just check this out for a second, how crazy this is. Daniel prays, God hears him day one, and sends a messenger through the form of an angel to go answer Daniel's request. 21 days later, the angel shows up, and his report to Daniel was, I met some sort of demonic principality over Persia, and I couldn't get to you. So God actually had to send Michael the archangel to help me, so here I am. Like, I'm sorry, this is just like, what this does for my theology and prayer is pretty wild. I'm like, whoa. Now, I don't know if my prayers actually govern like Michael the archangel coming to clear a path for me to like, for me to hear that response. But what I do know is that if we're praying for the coming of a kingdom and a will, there is a contrary kingdom and a contrary will at play. And so when we pray and we sense like, Lord, what, why, why isn't this clicking? Why isn't this coming in the way we want? It doesn't mean that there's a demon under every rock. It doesn't mean that when you're in traffic that there's some sort of principality over the five freeway preventing you from getting to work on time. You're just late, okay? It's, so don't over-spiritualize everything. But the reality is many of us under-spiritualize things. We don't take into consideration that there is a war going on right now that does not want our prayers of God's kingdom coming and God's will to be done to happen. And that's something to take into consideration. And you might be like, listen, cool story, Benji, that's Old Testament. 
Jesus took care of that on the cross. He said, it is finished. Colossians talks about that he makes a skeptical, a spectacle of all the, of the, and he makes like an embarrassment of all the things. And I'm, and, and I, I'm tracking with you, I get it, but something to consider. Paul, who talks about the decisive victory that happened on the cross, also writes this in his letter to the Ephesians. Finally, be strong in the Lord in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Apparently, they're still at play. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, and against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And you just thought you had a lame boss. No, it's far worse. I'm just kidding. <laughs> My pastor says, you're a devil's scheme. <laughs> Paul says, listen, you better suit up. Because the, the war, we're, you think you're fighting, it's in the flesh. It's actually not. There's something else at play here. And he tells him, put on the full armor of God and talks about how to stand firm with the belt of truth and the helmet of salvation and and extinguishing the fiery darts with the shield of faith. And he goes on and he describes all of these defensive mechanisms of a a shield and a belt and a breastplate and and and, and, um, all of these things. But at the end of it, He says, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Meaning the only offensive thing is this sword of the spirit, which he says is the word of God. And then he goes in to say this, see if you can pick up this verb with me, and pray in the spirit on all occasions of all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Pray also for me and whenever I speak, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I'm an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. Six times in three verses, Paul, Paul's response to spiritual warfare is what? Pray, pray, pray. What do you do? You pray. What's your offensive? It's prayer in the spirit, the word of God. This is what you do because we're facing a different sort of battle. And so for us, this is where we, we sometimes just underestimate the effectiveness of our prayer in spiritual warfare. But again, what, when we're dealing with disappointment in prayer, it's okay for us and we should take into consideration. We live actually in a, a, in a broken world and we are engaged in a spiritual war. Which leads to the third point, and in my opinion, the, the most mysterious and the most complex. Because at this point, I'm, for me, this is actually pretty easy to get. I'm like, cool, we live in a broken world. We have an adversary who doesn't want things to happen. That makes a lot of sense and provides a level of comfort in, in the sense of wishing things happen differently. But there's another point that I find incredibly layered and complex when it just comes to like God's way of answering prayers. But sometimes how God answers prayers um, is in a way that I, I wouldn't. So I want to give you two examples of the mystery of God's way. The first one comes from the Apostle Paul in his second letter to the Corinthians, chapter 12, where he says, Therefore, in order to keep me from being conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. 
For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So this is, this is Paul, probably more prayers than you and I could ever count in a lifetime. And he goes to God about something personal, a thorn in his flesh, which is some sort of metaphor for this thing that's tormenting him that he feels is, is some sort of thing that the devil's using to weaken him. And so he goes and he pleads and he says, please take this away. Take away this thorn. And God's response is essentially no. And not no in a cold-hearted way. It's actually no in a sense that what you're asking for, I'm going to give you something different. You're asking for relief and I'm going to give you Grace. You're asking not to be weak, but I'm actually okay with your weakness. Because in your weakness is where my power is made perfect. And there's a level of comfort that I feel that the Apostle Paul would pray for something, plead with God for something, and God's response is, I'm not going to give you or you're requesting, but what I am going to give you is going to be enough. It's my grace. I think another area of comfort that I find in Scripture, one that I haven't given much thought to before this week, is did you recognize that Jesus actually had an unanswered prayer? At least not in the way he wanted answered. Jesus requested something of the Father that ultimately the Father says, I'm not going to do it that way. Matthew 26 says, Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, Sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell on his face to the ground and prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And for every moment, it feels that we have not gotten the answer we wanted from our Heavenly Father. What a comfort it is to know that Jesus actually knows even what that feels like. And I mean, Jesus, by the way, without sin, came to the Father and said, if, if there is some other way, please let this cup pass because of what happened in the next few hours, we know that the Heavenly Father says, no, this has to happen. And for me, there's this, there's this moment that I feel a level of comfort, and if I could just kind of be vulnerable with you for a moment, where there's been a, a few times in my life where my, my faith in God has been challenged. Because I prayed for things that I'm like, God, don't you want this? I think about the moments when we were praying for my niece who passed away. My God, don't you want this? When we prayed for relief for someone in sickness or when I've been in the hospital room when a mom grabs my shoulders and pray that my son resurrects. And I do. I'm like, Lord, don't you want this? And there's these moments where I find myself lost in the mystery of God's way. I'm like, Lord, I don't understand. 
Because if I were you, I would answer this prayer. And I would answer it this way. And in the, at the end of those moments, as I step away months and years from those moments, I look back and, and here's what I need you to say. There's moments where I was searching for answers and I was looking for reasons. And I have to be honest with you, I never got those. I never got the reasons and the answers behind the prayers that didn't get answered the way I wanted. But if I step back long enough, what I do see is not reason, but I do sense redemption and even purpose to pain. And I think what I've recognized in the moments when I so badly want answers and I so badly want reasons is I've sensed the Holy Spirit speak to me and says, even if I gave you them, this would not hurt any less. And what I'm really wanting for is I'm saying, God, please don't waste this. Please don't waste this pain. And, and I have, and I can tell you this, God has taken the most painful moments of my life and my family's life, and he has used them in a few different ways. Number one, I have come to believe that God cared about every single tear we've cried and continue to cry in those moments. He cares about our honest cries of, of fear and confusion. But the other thing is those moments have carved in our souls a depth that otherwise would not have been there to extend empathy and grace to other people in the same type of pain. Parker Palmer, the Quaker writer, says this, the deeper our faith, the more doubt we must endure. The deeper our hope, the more prone we are to despair. The deeper our love, the more pain its loss will bring. These are a few of the paradoxes we must hold as human beings. If we refuse to hold them in the hopes of living without doubt, despair, and pain, we also find ourselves living without faith or hope, faith, and love. One of my favorite quotes comes from Dr. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, who is the psychologist in the 60s who came up with the five stages of grief. I've said it before, but I just want to read it again. She says this, the most beautiful people we have known are those who have known defeat, known suffering, known struggle, known loss, and have found their way out of the depths. These persons have an appreciation, a sensitivity, and an understanding of life that fills them with compassion, gentleness, and a deep loving concern. And then this line, beautiful people do not just happen. And so when it comes to God's way, I will be the first to tell you I don't think that in some of these moments, there is an adequate answer or reason. The people who say there's, like, everything happens for a reason, that's not a Bible verse, in case you didn't know. <laughs> I'm serious. It's not a Bible verse. And some people, and, and they're trying, in the goodness of their heart, they're trying to help. And if you've ever experienced, like, a depth of loss, or, like, sometimes you're like, that's not helpful. There's a reason for this? What the Bible does say is God will find a purpose for your pain. He will bring redemption. But I think that sometimes the best things we can do, and I'll leave it here when it comes to the God's way, is 
It is mysterious, yet God will meet you in his mercy. Why? Because Jesus knows what it's like to have a prayer that goes unanswered the way he wanted it. Jesus is the great high priest who sympathizes, which literally means suffers with us. And in those moments, if we let it, God will carve out a deeper sense of love and compassion and grace in our hearts in the mystery to say, God, I don't get this. And, I, and for whatever it's worth, as someone who spends their life studying scripture and I love Jesus on my heart, there are so many questions I have for God that I'm really hoping that I will get to address at some point. But I've also found a level of um, comfort of even Peter's words. He says, where else would I go? You have the words of life. But the last thing that I want to end on are these four different points is not only is there God's world, God's war, and God's way, there's something beautiful working in the midst, and it's God's will. Is it God's will that's towards good and healing and redemption? Is that there always? Is it just for some? And I think the the greatest perspective change or shift I can give you in terms of God's will is look at God's will through the lens of eternity. God is not just inhabiting eternity, he defines it. So as much as we want to operate with God in our temporal worlds of our our own lifetime span, God is operating, yes, in that, but he's also operating through the lens of eternity. Now the good news is this, When we start understanding God's will in terms of his eternal narrative that he's writing, we actually start to see that God is answering more prayers than we even think he's doing. It just may look a little bit different than the the temporal lens that many of us live our life through. But when we can take on this idea of eternity, everything starts to shift. Let me give you a couple examples. Number one in John chapter 11 it says, when he heard this, Jesus said, so they just brought this report to Jesus saying, Lazarus, your best friend is dying. And he says, this sickness will not end in death. If you keep reading John 11, Lazarus dies. Which means Jesus either was mistaken, lied, or, which I believe, his definition of the word end is different than ours. This will not end in death. Jesus' final, full sense vision of what's going on here says it's not death. That's not how it ends. He then goes on and says, no, it's for God's glory that God's son may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. He loved this family. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. Guys, how frustrating is that? He just got told, hey, your friend's about to die. He's really sick. And he's like, I, oh, this won't end in death. I, I love him. I'm going to stay here for two extra days. I mean, talk about the mystery of God's way. I mean, I'm, I'm, I don't get that one. <laughs> Skip down to verse 21. Lazarus has now been dead for four days in the tomb. Martha goes to Jesus and she says, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. True statement. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection of the last day. And she's referring to a common held Jewish um, 
theology that there's going to be a resurrection, a bodily resurrection of the dead on the day of, of the Messiah's return and all of these things. And, and Jesus says to her, looks at her and says, I'm the resurrection and the life. The resurrection is not an event, it's a person. And I'm here. And what happens later in this moment is Jesus goes and resurrects Lazarus. And he, he reveals his will in that moment. This is who I am. This is what I do. When I show up, things raise to life because that's who I am. I am the resurrection and the life. This is why Paul famously talks about how there's not death or life, right? Can't separate us. Angels or demons, present or future, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, anything else in all of creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And so Jesus has a different definition of what the end looks like. And I think the most explicit way that we can read this comes in Revelation 21. When he says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. Verse 4, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. I love this line. For the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. So God's will is bent towards redemption. It's bent towards healing. It is this sense that when you take on the lens of eternity, what you find is that even though Lazarus raised from the dead, guess what? He died again. And that, we don't really think about that, but at some point he got sick again. And so everything on this side of, of heaven ultimately results in this sense of we live in this frustrated state. But here's the beautiful thing that I want us to capture. When we start understanding God's will in light of eternity, that the prayers we pray that go along with the will of God, even if they feel unanswered on this side of the earth, ultimately will be answered. So guess what? Someday I'm going to dance with my niece again. That prayer will be answered and currently already has been. She is made whole and well. The, the mom who had me pray for her son to resurrect, guess what? He did. He's with God in paradise right now. There is a sense that, we, and again, it doesn't, and I'm not trying to spiritually bypass or remove the pain, but what I'm saying is it's within the light of eternity that we realize, oh, those prayers we thought weren't answered actually were. Because Jesus says there's going to come a time where every single tear from our eyes will be wiped away. The psalm says everyone's actually collected in a bottle. So God will see us when we meet him in heaven. He says, I saw every one of them. He said that there's no more death, there's no more crying, there's no more mourning. The whole order of things, the frustrated earth, it's passed away. And it says the voice from the throne says, I'm making everything new. And so when we pray, we pray God's will. Because even though we live in the midst of a broken world and a spiritual war in a complex way, we know God's will. And we pray it. 
I remember nine months ago, standing next to my grandpa's bed as he was getting ready to take his last breath, and my grandma, my precious little like four foot nothing grandma, is leaning over his bed, and she's praying for his healing, and I gently lean over to her, and I'm like, Grandma, what if we just, like, let's just pray that he can go be with Jesus, and she said something that was really challenging to me. She says, this is the only time we get to pray for healing, because there's no healings in heaven. And she says, so as long as he's here, I'm going to pray for healing. And I watched my frail little grandma teach me something so deep. She says, listen, she, she knew. She knew that he was about to take his last breath, but she had no problem ushering him into the presence of God and yet praying for God's will to spill over into earth at the same time. And so I want you to think, and again, this is a room filled with people who've had prayers that they wish were answered differently. But we get to pray differently because we understand God's eternal will is at play. And that's what we're praying for. That's how we pray. We say, Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done. So I'm gonna keep praying for the sick. I'm gonna keep praying for restoration. I'm gonna keep praying for your kingdom to come and for darkness to be turned to light and for oppression to be turned into freedom. I'm gonna keep praying even when the world keeps reminding me how broken it is. I know God's eternal world is at play and he told me to pray that it would come here. So I'm gonna keep praying like that. And this is what I think Jesus had in mind when he says, keep asking Keep seeking, keep knocking, don't stop. And so for a collection of people to say, man, Lord, I, there's been moments where it has been hard to pray and I wish you would have answered them differently. We can also say, but Lord, I'm gonna trust you because I know that you are the resurrection and the life and that you know what to do with my questions, you know what to do with my pain. I wanna read you a prayer from a poet named Ted Loder who has this beautiful ebb and flow from the honesty of unanswered prayer and he moves into a level of gratitude which is where we'll end tonight. And he says this, hear me quickly, Lord, for my mind soon wanders to other things I'm more familiar with and more concerned about than I am with you. Words will not do, Lord. Listen to my tears, for I have lost much and fear more. Listen to my sweat, for I wake at night overwhelmed by darkness and strange dreams. Listen to my sighs, for my longing surges like the sea, urgent, mysterious beckoning. Listening to my growling gut, for I hunger for bread and intimacy. Listen to my curses, for I am angry at the way the world comes down on me, and sometimes, and I sometimes on it. Listen to my crackling knuckles, for I hold very tightly to myself and anxiously squeeze myself into others' expectations and them into mine, and then shake my fists at you for disappointing me. Listen to my footfalls, for I stumble to bring good tidings to someone. Listen to my groans, for I ache towards healing. Listen to my worried weariness, for my work matters much to me and needs help. Listen to my tension, for I ache towards accepting who I am and who I cannot be. Listen to my hunched back, for sometimes I can't bear the needs and demands of the world anymore, and I want to put it down and give it back to you. But listen to my laughter, for there are friends and mercy, and something urges me to thank. Listen to my humming, 
For sometimes I catch all unaware the rhythms of creation, and then music without words rises in me and to meet it. And there is the joy of romping children and dancing angels. Listen to my blinking eyes for at certain moments when sunlight strikes just right, or stars pierce the darkness just enough, or clouds roll around just so, or snow kisses the world into quietness. Everything is suddenly transparent. When something in me is pure enough for an instant to see your kingdom in a glance. And so to praise you in a gasp, quick, then gone. But it is enough. Listen to me quickly, Lord. I think for us as a church, as we get ready to conclude a series on prayer, This is not a series to kind of to whip us up into an emotional frenzy that will die off in a couple of months. But it's for us, to, in all of our honesty, to say prayer is, is something that we're drawn to. It's something that many of us have felt frustrating. It's something that requires honesty and something that requires a tremendous amount of faith. But when we pursue it, what we find is the beauty of God's eternal will at play. So this is what I want to propose to you. I want to propose that we create a sustainable rhythm of prayer in our life and in our church. Um, I don't want it to be so robust that none of us can make it past week one. I want it to be something that could be something that we could engage with in months and years to come. And it has to do around the idea of, of praying without ceasing. Let me read you a couple passages that where it's represented. Philippians 4 says, Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Don't be anxious about anything. But in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Similarly, the ending of Paul's letter to the Thessalonians says this, Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. And so Paul, much of this written while he's in prison, his command is this, have some joy, rejoice. The, the, the word rejoice is the Greek word joy in verb form. Joy together when you pray, pray about everything. Don't stop. And when you pray, do it with thanksgiving. Have gratitude in your heart when you pray. Again, from the guy in chains. So don't just think this is some guy who's like, oh, I'm a, you know, alleviated from all pain and suffering. In the midst of his pain and suffering, he just tells us, just don't stop praying with consistency and gratitude. So these are the three things I would like for you to consider. I want you to consider your morning, your midday, and your evening to be rhythms of prayer. Your morning would be about centering yourself around the Lord's will and presence. Your midday would be about engaging in intercession, like you're praying for others, like you just put alarm in your phone for this. And evening would be about prayers of contentment, about gratitude and grace. So to practice this this week, I set reminders in my phone and on my iPad, and so Every day at 6 a.m., I'm reminded at noon and at 7 p.m., there's these little alerts that come up and it just says pray. And I know that in the morning, I, 
and again, those are just for me, so I, I oftentimes am so like whatever's in front of my face, I forget. It just disrupts me just enough to remember, okay, I want to have a consistent rhythm of prayer. So the morning, practically I would give you two things to consider. Number one, pray the Lord's Prayer every morning. Print it out, remember that? Like get a printer <laughs> and like put it somewhere, you know? Um, if you don't have one, make it like your screensaver or something like that. I don't know. Like write it out in a journal, but put it somewhere you're going to see and you can pray every morning. Please do this before you open up social media or your email or your news source. Pray the Lord's Prayer. Center your life around Him. And the second thing I would encourage you to do in the morning is actually receive. One of my favorite ways of engaging listening prayer is just reading Psalm 23 and just seeing what the Lord's speaking to me through that. How the Lord is presenting Himself to me as a shepherd. But simple, just start your day in prayer. In the midday, I would encourage you, as much as it's, it's, you're going to want to just pray about the things that are right in front of you or that like really annoying coworker that is bugging you again or that deadline you're trying to meet, um, pray for others. Just use, at one point in your day, say, I'm just praying for the people. Make a list, note section in your phone or on Evernote or in your journal. Like have a, an ongoing list of this is who I'm praying for. Philip Yancey says, of all the means God could have used, prayer seems the weakest, slipperiest, and easiest to ignore. So it is, unless Jesus was right in that most baffling claim, he went away for our sakes as a form of power sharing to invite us into the direct communion with God and to give us a crucial role in the struggle against the forces of evil. Prayer, and the call to prayer, is Jesus' invitation to power sharing. So let's pray. Let's pray for those who are lost. Pray for those who are hurting, who need healing. And then the last thing, and the one I'm excited to implement in my own life at a greater degree, is evening prayer around gratitude and grace, this idea of practicing contentment. I want to read you an excerpt from Tyler Staten's book, he says this, during the Jewish Passover, the Israelites traditionally sing a song called, a gratitude song called Dayinu. Dayinu means it would have been enough. I once heard a pastor offer this translation, thank you God for overdoing it. Dayinu prayer sounds like, God, lunch today would have been enough, but you provided me with the resources to choose the type of food I wanted to eat and options to pick from. God, lunch of my choice would have been enough, but you created a world of flavor and spice and culture to make food more than fuel, to offer it as artistic and delicious. God, a delicious lunch of my choice would have been enough, but you gave me a coworker to share a conversation with over that food. Thank you, God, for overdoing it. That's Dainu. So I just encourage you guys to, what would it look like if you ended every day saying, Lord, thank you, for overdoing, doing it. It would have been enough. Would have been enough that you continue to meet me in ways more profound than I could ever imagine. I'm gonna invite the worship team to come up. We are invited to be a house of prayer. We don't do this with blindness or spiritual bypassing or emotional maturity. We do this in the complexity of the world that we live in, but we do it by asking and seeking and knocking and not stopping. Thanks for listening to the Light Church Podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. We pray that the Lord would speak to you through his word. 
For more information, you can visit our website, lightsandiego.com. Thank you.